0: Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. There is no denying that all of us as tennis fans miss the week in, week out, day in, day out grind of professional tennis. Knowing that wherever we are across the globe, there will always be some sort of professional action, whether it's the Futures Tour, the Challenger Tour, ATP, WTA events. There's always some sort of tennis going on. That's half the fun of being a tennis fan. It is one of the most consistently rewarding sports as a fan because it's always available to be consumed and. While, you know, of course, as I mentioned, we all miss the action, there's also no denying that news from the professional tennis world has kept all of us busy, has captured all of our attention at various points throughout this quarantine time. And the main reason they have our attention, not the main reason, but one of the biggest topics why, it dates back to when Roger Federer a few weeks ago released that tweet that they were going, you know, uh, suggesting that it would be pretty cool if the ATP and WTA uh, tours merged. And from that, we heard various sources start to say, well, actually, discussions have been ongoing. And of course, Roger Federer doesn't just recklessly speculate, recklessly tweet. There's a purpose to everything he does. That's why he's such a great champion. it's been a fascinating storyline to monitor, and we are still trying to see those final details. What it will look like, because there are so many various specifics to negotiate—things from the TV rights, from you know how many events are going to be played, what the prize money is going to look like, so on and so forth. What the you know a single organization even looks like at that point. Uh, But we thought for today's podcast that we would speak to someone who is as well-versed in the nuances of the organizational structure of professional tennis, of professional tennis tours as anyone, and that's why we brought in former ATP CEO Mark Miles on the podcast today. And for those of you who don't know Mark's history, he was CEO from August 1990 through 2005 of the ATP tour during his time, prize money rose from 47 to 85. Million long term commercial sponsorships put in place. Uh, you know, there's the various things he did with Mercedes Benz to establish as a premium partner, I- ensuring that Olympic tennis returned. And, you know, so many things that you think of the 90s through the early 2000s Sampras and Agassiz, and then the emergence of Roger Federer, and just the way the game changed, the way the marketing for the game changed. You know, certainly uh, there's no better person to talk about the ins and outs of professional tennis structurally than a former. CEO of the ATP tour so we have a really fun conversation with Mark coming up of course we discussed the ongoing merger talks his perspective on that some history behind those merger talks because you know every anytime something like this happens or Talks of player unionization happens The excitement of the moment You get so thrilled, you're like, oh, this has probably Never happened before, it's never been This seriously discussed before And we all start to think of the future Of where it might happen, but These conversations have gone around professional tennis For years, and that's what Made clear by Mark through this Conversation, is while these ideas have been Refreshed, uh, they are not new And there are plenty of complications and Challenges that lie ahead, and we discussed That, and so much more, of course He is a former tennis player at uh, Wabash I call it Wabash It's Wabash I apologize for that I made that same mistake there So that you're ready for it When that mistake happens In the podcast quite shortly of course, before we get to that interview, I have to quickly let all of you know that this podcast is made possible by our friends at DraftKings, and as we repeatedly mention on our Cracked Rackets podcast, tennis is maybe the only sport that sees action 24-7, 365 days a year when it's going from the future circuit to the Grand Slams. Tournaments are constantly taking place around the globe, and fans are routinely treated to spectacular play. We do our best here at Cracked Rackets to break down all of the results, analyze the game emerging trends offer predictions of what we think will happen next but that being said as fun as it is to watch the sport break down each match we're all still tennis players at heart as such we all want a piece of the action that's why we at Crack Rackets are thrilled to announce our new partnership with DraftKings we know listeners of this podcast are the most informed tennis fans in the business but what's the point of having all that knowledge if you can't take advantage of it that's why we think it's time for you To bet on tennis. And thanks to our new partnership with DraftKings, all new users will get a racking, cracking sign up bonus of up to $1,000. Here's how it works create your DraftKings Sportsbooks account and make a deposit. DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. Then you're going to make your first bet, and DraftKings will also match that. With a risk free first bet of up to $500. Just go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to play. That's dkng.co slash cracking rackets. Again, act quickly before this offer ends. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in New Jersey, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, 1 800 9 With It in Indiana, or 1 800 Bets Off in Iowa. You must be 21 years or older to play and must be in one of New Jersey, Indiana, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Iowa as well. All right, with that being said, let's get to my interview with former ATP CEO Mark Miles. Joining us on today's podcast, you know, listeners, we felt we needed a more experienced hand to help you talk through the potential ATP WTA merger talks, to talk through the player relief funding that is merged and that is why we are so excited to be joined today by the former CEO of the ATP, Mark Miles. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. We're surviving. I'm, I'm now in a different sport, um, uh, IndyCar racing and you know, we all spend all of our time just thinking through every imaginable contingency and trying to figure out how to get cars on track.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's the—we're all trying to figure out how to stay on the track at this point, right? Exactly. In yeah. fact, one well, of our
1: well, one of our sort of communications uh, themes today is back on track. So that works for the economy and for people, you know, at the human level, and, and for sports as well.
0: Yeah, it's a good mindset, but it's even better marketing. So I love it. It's a perfect phrase to uh, capture what we are all trying to do. And obviously, we are extremely grateful to have you on the podcast today. Given your experience, I believe you served as CEO of the ATP from 1990 till 2005. And I do want to talk about your time with the ATP and talk about the transition that happened then. Uh, but I'm curious, let's just start You know, with the basics. A global pandemic was not something anyone could Anticipated, and in general, you know, how prepared do you think the sports world was for something like this? Do you think, you know, there there was anything previously to prepare people for the sort of impact this was going to have?
1: No. The short answer is absolutely not. You know, we we've been through political issues that affected Olympics before, and other political issues that could have could or did have impact on sports, but. Yeah, I got involved in professional tennis in 1985, really, uh, and then 1990 at the ATP. And Whether you're talking tennis or or motorsport, the world hadn't seen anything like this. All you have to do is spend some time, as we do, talking with uh, broadcasters around the world uh, to understand that this is just a completely unprecedented and huge challenge for everybody involved.
0: Mm -hmm. And whether it be IndyCar or, you know, professional tennis, both are international sports. And I'm curious, do you think international sports are more likely to be affected than, say, domestic leagues, just given all of the travel, given all of the coordination that goes into uh, being a global sport?
1: I think that was kind of everybody's sense in the United States when the pandemic started to get into everybody's consciousness, right? It was it was it was international was coming from Asia. It affected, uh, you know, Spain early on and Italy. And it seemed like, uh, you know, I remember when we first started circulating health questionnaires to our people, you know, the questions were, have you been abroad? Well, we stopped asking that because now America has, you know, is is kind of a ground zero hotspot as well. And, um, you know, it is global. It, there, There is no place i can think of where tennis or or racing or basketball or you know or or soccer would be played where it's not a local and national issue as well as international it is truly a global
0: pandemic Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious, as someone who is trying to plan for not just the short term and getting drivers and getting racers and you know tennis-wise, it would be players and events uh, through this time period. But you know, what's more difficult—dealing with the immediate impact or trying to plan for long-term events—given all of the uncertainty surrounding really everything at this point?
1: Well, we don't have the luxury of of making that choice. You got to deal mm-hmm. with all of it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, our first race was to be in St. Petersburg, Florida in the middle of, of March. It happened to be scheduled for the weekend when the Big Ten basketball tournament was called off. The, N- the NBA announced the end of its season for now. Um, the NCAA said uh, March Madness was was uh, off and, and this dominoes started to fall. When we got off the plane in St. Petersburg, we were expecting to do a race. That was a Thursday. The race was to be Sunday. Uh, We went straight to the mayor's office when we arrived, announced it would have to be without fans, and the next day announced it was canceled altogether. So you you just have to deal with the urgencies of the day. We, We got back to our headquarters in Indianapolis and started thinking about making the schedule again, knowing that we'd have to make it again and again because you don't really know. So the contingency planning began in earnest. It's just, you know, you just have to keep a lot of plates spinning at the same time and uh, deal with the urgencies of the day as well as all this future scenario planning.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to, to get back to the tennis side, because there are so many competing interests in tennis. There's what the tournaments want. There's what the tennis federations want. And then there's ultimately what the players want. And I, I can't speak to the circumstances in IndyCar racing, just to be candid, as well as I can in tennis. But having all of those competing interests in tennis as someone who was part of you know professional tennis for as long as you were, how much more difficult do you think that makes? trying to coordinate everything amongst all of the differing tennis entities
1: it is it is much much more challenging uh, i'll i'll stop talking about racing because i want to talk <laughs> to sure about tennis but we actually as a private company own the series mm-hmm. and and so ultimately you know i i spent 15 years with the atp board which i chaired with a player council and the tournament council and all players and all tournaments and regional groups and You know, to to change anything was an elaborate, usually painstaking process. Here, I literally could, I wouldn't do it, not for a second, but I literally could send an email today uh, to our stakeholders in in racing and we'd have a new rule. So the complexities in tennis are pretty much, uh, I think, unrivaled for degree of difficulty.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 1990, I believe that was when the transition was made from the Grand Prix tennis and the World Championship tennis to a formalized ATP tour. And, you know, in that moment, that crisis was more, I, I mean, what led to the merging of the, AT, you know, to the formation, I suppose, of what we now call the ATP tour? And how do those circumstances, do you think, differ from the merger talks and the the reasoning behind why we have heard discussions between the ATP and WTA forming one joint entity.
1: Well, I think the commonality, the similarity, is so many different stakeholders that, that would have to be aligned to, to be able to make something happen. And those, it's amazing. I guess it was a long time ago. In 1985, I was a, uh, you know, doing something else in Indianapolis, my hometown, and I was had been serving as the volunteer uh, chairman of the then. Uh, grand prix men and women's tournament on clay two weeks before the u.s open in indianapolis so i was asked to get involved because i'd played college tennis and had been involved in organizing other sports and so you know we made a lot of changes on that event but we met the tournament director throughout north america Um, and and then the players led by then hamilton jordan who had been jimmy carter president carter's chief of staff in the white house Decided that they had had enough of what was really a, a very uh, dated uh, structure for the governance of, of the men's professional tennis. Basically, you had three constituents. You had the, if you called the slams and the ITF one, and then you had um, the players, and then you had the tournaments, And each had, I think, three votes on a nine vote board. And they, they, they really were there to protect their individual interests and they serve much more as regulators than as any kind of modern uh, sanctioning body or league to grow the sport. And the players just recognized, they'd seen uh, before that um, a revolution in golf that created the PGA Tour that's basically operated by the players and or controlled by the players, and they want to do the same thing. And they actually studied the PGA Tour model a lot I got asked, uh, kind of minding my own business, Minneapolis, to get engaged with the leadership of the ATP and the player association, to try to uh, influence the way the tour would be put together from a governance point of view and a calendar point of view. And those uh, three or four years leading up to the first ball being hit in January of 1990 on the ATP tour really is kind of what got me in, engaged with the game professionally and then ultimately uh, hired to to be the uh, chairman and CEO. Mm
0: -hmm. And I believe you played your college tennis at Wabash, right? Yeah.
1: Wabash? I don't know. Wabash is the way.
0: Wabash. <laughs> See, so that right there is the Michigan difference. I'm a man of up north, and so there, I'm exposed now. But I'm in Indy now, so you know, I've made the right trip. I've seen the errors in my previous ways. Uh, but no, it's great to hear, of course, your college tennis background, and we could probably do 30 minutes on that. But uh, I'm curious, how do you think the interests in tennis have changed? I, because you, the bodies you bring up, I feel as though – Even with the formation of the ATP, there are still those same interests. And, you know, they're still negotiating with the Grand Slams versus negotiating with a 250 event versus whatever goes on on the challengers and futures circuit. Do you think the interests have remained the same in, you know, the same competing interests in tennis? Do you think they've changed over the past, you know, uh, I guess, 15 years since you've left the sport? Uh,
1: My sense is that they're very, very similar. It's still... From a governance point of view, a, a league that's, you know, that requires uh, to make major changes, even, even sometimes minor rule changes, it requires the hard work of getting a consensus and selling a proposal to uh, these constituents, all of whom start out with their own uh, point of view. I often said I, I felt more like a prime minister than a, a <laughs> than a commissioner, because you know, you had to have credibility and relationships and had to be communicating with all those stakeholders. And it was, you know, up and down. I mean, there were times when, you know, the ATP tour had a real love-hate relationship with individual Grand Slams or, a partic- or, or all of them collectively or the ITF. There were times when we collaborated more closely with the WTA than on other times. And there were times internally when, you know, it's not, it's not, there was never, people used to ask me what the players think, and you would always say, well, which players, because <laughs> it's, it's normal that top players may have a different perspective than guys trying to break their way onto the, you know, get the ranking up to get the place where they can play, and European or clay court guys may feel differently than hard court guys and North Americans. It, it was always very, uh, a mosaic of interests, and I don't see any any evidence that it's much different now
0: yeah no, i would agree with that and you know as someone from the executive side why is it important uh that in you know a time of crisis such as now that it be easy to coordinate all of the efforts you know why is it important that the atp would ha- you know would be more beneficial i suppose not important but beneficial for them to have one coherent player body to deal with
1: well, you know, I, I think it's theoretically, um, yeah. if you've got one one entity to deal with, then it's uh, it's it's easier. But it, yeah. I, I guess I spent too many years understanding how players think, and the other can stakeholders and constituents. I just don't see that as as at all realistic. Players come from different perspectives. If you if there were a separate player association, then somehow that player association would have to pull all the different player voices together i always thought that was my job to be able to get to to get guys to understand what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it and to and to get enough support to make something happen it was never quick it was never a really fast process Um, but i always felt like when we went through the hard work of getting a consensus and normally we, we you know we we might not have gotten everything we wanted but a lot of changes were made that were strategically aligned with what we thought was important. Um, it may have taken longer, but when we got it done, we had a lot more strength in those decisions. We, you know, we never had anything like a strike or a work stoppage, and we saw lots of other sports go through that sort of thing. So, you know, you can people argue it different ways, but I think it's pretty simplistic to think that the players of the world are going to unite and have a common point of view. It it takes a lot of work, however it's organized, to get a level of consensus.
0: Mm-hmm. and we talked about you know the good branding that goes with get back on track well in terms of nailing a title something called the men's international professional tennis council in theory sounds like there would be a bunch of player representation that players would influence the decisions of that international professional tennis council um more than they obviously did and for those who are unaware of the history of the you know the international professional tennis council can you uh, elaborate on that you know what that entity was and you know, why entities like that in the past sort of confirm your belief. And what seems to be clear is how difficult it is to form one unified player, whether it be a player union, whether it be a player council and how hard it is to have that entity have any teeth in what they're saying.
1: Yeah. Well, again, back, back in that day before the ATP tour, the WTA tour, there was the men's international professional tennis uh, council. I'd forgotten the name, frankly. Um, (laughs) And it was, as I said, more of a regulatory body than than set up to, I mean, it's one thing to make rules and to make a calendar. In those days, there wasn't a single regulation or rule governing the way that the sport was going to be licensed to be presented on television. There was no, the, the only um, packaging of rights, putting together either sponsorship rights for tournaments or television rights was done by you know, ProServe and IMG and Advantage, the big sports marketing firms of the day. And they would put together whatever rights they they could get from tournaments, go sell them. And if you're a consumer, you know, if you're a fan, you might have been in Florida and watched uh, the event in Tel Aviv on television, which happened four months earlier, on the same day that the event in Key Biscayne was happening live. So just complete chaos. And that's because, from our perspective, the the council was not looking to grow the sport commercially. They were looking to make rules and to um, and make a calendar. And part of that was the ranking system, although the ATP controlled the ranking system, the Players Association. So it was just not, the, the mindset was more protecting the constituents from each other than trying to grow the sport. And that was a big part of the premise of the creation of the ATP Tour. And I think by and large, by the way, you know, that has been, it's focus. Now, you can argue about all the tactics and strategies to grow the game, but, but it shifted. The most important thing in the creation of the ATP tour was the emphasis shifted to how do we, how do we create more popularity, not just how do we you know sort out different obje- uh, preferences among the stakeholders.
0: And I I would argue you were quite successful as prize money rose from I think it was around forty seven million to eighty five million during your time and prize money has continued to rise but I'm curious just because you talk about raising the popularity and negotiating TV rights. Are the ATP and WTA uh, competing interests in that respect? In that they're looking for the same sort of you know tennis fans to watch their product to attend their product. Is it fair to say that despite both being professional tennis organizations, they're competing interests in the market?
1: Yeah, I think it is. Basically, um, you know, again, we're talking now in the mid '90s, and so five or six, five years probably into the the, the New ATP tour, WTA tour organizations. Let me just talk for a second about the men's side and then we'll get to the WTA. So, on the men's side, our, our, our issue, our strategy was fans don't know what to watch, when to watch it. They know Grand Slams are important. They may look to tune into Davis Cup back then, but everything else was just sort of this um, you know, tennis popped up when it top, popped up. They didn't know what events counted for what in a ranking. They didn't know how the ranking worked, um, except for slams. And so we started to think we need to create some clarity in the structure so that um, we had a series of events along with the slams that would drive the popularity of the sport, create a bigger audience. (laughs) Back then we created the Master Series, which was nine events. And we... um, change the ranking so that the players results in the tournament had to count uh, in their ranking instead of being droppable under a best of ranking system that was uh, started with the advent of the ATP tour. Um, we required players to play them basically. And we, we actually bought all of their television and sponsorship rights at one point. And the whole idea was to be able to present a coherent, Uh, top-level game. Well, another aspect of it was to to sit back and look at the slams. One of the impromptuers of the slams was men and women together, Um, and over more than one weekend. Two weekends was really important. The only model that existed in 1990 for that, other than the four grand slams, was the tournament then in Key Biscayne, which was men and women together over two weekends. And it was meaningfully more important than all the rest of the events on the on the circuit, not including the slams. So we wanted to move toward that. You know, Indian Wells was women and then men. Well, we put them together in the same week. Uh, the Canadian Open and the German Open were separate men's and women's tournaments one week followed by the next. We began to move them together because we thought that if we can align these things and position these events properly – there will be more times when tennis fans all over the world will pay more attention. And I still think that was a pretty good strategy. Now you get to today. Well, well, let me, let me start with, it was difficult because you had to make the economics work. You had to have the promoter, um, be able to afford the, the cost really of the prize money for men and women knowing that if he could get he or she could get 10 days two weekends it was a meaningful boost potentially in their economics then you had to work through matching up the women's calendar with the men's calendar very hard um because making a calendar for either series either tour is tough let alone trying to align them and then there was the economics and the women of course wanted equal prize money at a time when if you if you, if you put aside the Grand Slams, and you just looked at the economics of the men's events on the ATP Tour and the women's event on the WTA Tour, they weren't in the same stratosphere. The the value in the marketplace at that time of men's tennis by itself was far greater than the than women's tennis by itself. People today may not want to hear that, but that was just a fact. And it was the, in the women's. Uh, interest that if men and women are going to play together, like like was the case at the U.S. Open for years and was becoming the case at the Grand Slams, then they should at least move toward equal price money. And that wasn't very popular with the men. We had to make the case that, look, we're going to grow the whole pot. So even if the women's prize money is going to increase significantly, guys, you shouldn't worry about that because the whole is going to increase and you're going to get paid better as well. And we made a lot of progress, but um, I will say it was, a, it was a difficult sell on the economics, but um, we believed it was good for the growth of the entire game.
0: Mm -hmm. And you you get into there, uh, something I want to follow up on, because from a PR standpoint, the idea of having one unified tour of men and women competing alongside of each other, I don't think anyone needs to sell that. That's a slam dunk. But you talk about the economics, and we've heard current WTA CEO Steve Simon come out and say this, current ATP president Andrea Gaudenzi come out and say it as well, that they think by working together, by packaging the media rights, by, uh, you know, trying to uh, form more men's and women's events side-by-side at the same tournament on the same week that there, there will be a bigger, you know, economic pie I suppose for all tennis players to eat out of and I apologize for that metaphor it's early on a Friday morning here I'm struggling Um, but you know what do you think about that mindset do you think that tennis by negotiating together by removing the competition between the ATP and WTA that could lead to a better financial uh, world I suppose for all tennis players to live in Uh,
1: basically yes Um, you know if you think about in this country any other league right they they manage their rights quite carefully and anything that's national where there's a rev share is generally controlled by the league so they can make the best economic arrangements maybe local rights you know are controlled locally but but there's no question that in general uh, control of the relevant rights, in this case to be defined as both men and women's tennis can create value in the marketplace but there are a lot of issues and one of them is antitrust we spent a whole lot of time with a whole lot of high-powered lawyers thinking globally about the antitrust issues Um, i will say that it is easier to imagine uh, a construction where you're pooling rights and, say, and taking them to the market together, than it is to to legally merge the entities into one entity. And we're about to get into some arcane antitrust law issues, but basically, just you can take my word for it that uh, <laughs> pu- pu- you know buying rights from different uh, men's and women's events and putting them together and taking the market that's been going on in one way or another for a long time, including as I said, back in the 70s and 80s by the the uh, sports marketing agencies that were created in that time frame just to do it like IMG back then. Um, But actually merging into one entity creates a whole nother set of antitrust issues that would have to be very carefully uh, thought through or risks uh, significant litigation. And then there's the economics, right? So today, I'm not that close to the I'm not close to the locker room at all. I would say, and I don't. I haven't talked to anybody at the ATP Tour about the current situation at all. So you're just getting my perspective personally. But you know, I'm sure that that male players wonder if it's true. I mean, it is obviously true that when men and women have played together and it works and it's done well, the total economics get greater. But they have to wonder whether or not um, if that comes with the women getting an equal share that is less than they would have gotten um, uh, or should get based on what they perceive to be their value. And it's the other way around for the women, right? They think it's a no brainer that if they're playing, uh, they got to play for the same money if they're playing on the same stage, the same courts on the same event. So the economic questions are undoubtedly still real and it's inspiring to see Rafa, Roger and those guys think more broadly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that inside a locker room for either the WTA or the ATP, they don't start out with uh, a common view that simply growing is better. You also got to worry about how to split it. So it's, it's going to be complicated, and I think um, it's an interesting conversation, and these are interesting times, but it, it is not simple, and it is really the skill of Gaudenzi and Steve um, who who have to figure out how to have the right advice uh, globally to make sure that the structure can't simply be knocked over if they create it by uh, litigation. You know, I've been in federal court uh, sued by tournaments in Qatar and Hamburg over just this kind of issue and it it gets expensive um, and, uh, you know, it can put the best laid plans on hold, why things get sorted out.
0: Yeah. I, Look, I would do thirty minutes on why professional tennis having a monopoly on professional tennis is illegal because that sounds fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, I, I I imagine it gets very complicated and again I want to be conscious of your time and you know, we, we sort of touched on you want to know why player unions don't exist. It's because there are competing interests because for the top five players what's at stake for them and what they're worried about in professional tennis are is completely different than the other, you know, nine hundred and ninety five players in the top 1,000. Um, you know, last couple of questions for you. Uh, because there are competing interests, it seems like this would be difficult to coordinate uh, and agree on a certain person to serve this role. But do you think tennis is in need of a commissioner, of just someone in charge of the game as a whole, as opposed to all the individual competing interests?
1: Well, that's a question I was asked, you know, from 1990 through <laughs> 2005. And my answer is, frankly, was you got to think that through Mm -hmm. what I mean. Sure. Goodell is a commissioner and he gets, you know, a lot of stones get thrown at him because he's perceived to make a lot of decisions and he does make a lot of decisions, but it's not like he owns the NFL, you know, (laughs) he, he has to manage the needs and expectations and perspectives of the owners of the NFL And I, you know, I I was chairman of our Super Bowl in Indianapolis. I've met with its leadership and the owners of the NFL frequently. That is not, I think people think if you're a commissioner, you own the sport, you just decide exactly what you want to do. That's really naive and that's not how it works. So, um, look, I've already said and I mean it, that I think the stakeholder complexity in tennis is greater than any other sport I can think of, except maybe soccer worldwide. Um, But the idea that if you just have one person in charge, it's fixed, I think is really naive. I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think it would solve the problem, because those stakeholders are still out there. And um, you you still have to have enough positive results for enough of those stakeholders uh, for, for it to work.
0: Yeah. And you, you talk about the stakeholders, again, uh, during your time in 1990-2005, you got to see the rise of Sampras, of Agassi, and you know two of the best players in tennis history, certainly two of the most infamous. Uh, how much do the personalities at the top, in your opinion, drive the success of professional tennis? How important is it that there be a Sampras or a Serena or a Federer at the top of the game to really drive the marketing dollars, and you know does that mean they have an outsized in influence in what happens.
1: A great question. So uh, it's 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 the far and away the most important thing, right? And sometimes a player can like like Rafa or Roger in our, in in the tennis case can have the kind of global influence that is rare and compelling more often than not they have a national influence, right? There's you know a player can be a big deal in Spain and not a big deal uh, in the United States. So um, they, they have different influences in different ways. It's, there aren't very many players that have a global profile like we're talking about with, with the Williams sisters or uh, Rafa and Roger. Um, but then it comes down to whether or not they want to use that influence. And, you know, I, I consider Pete Sampras a friend. You know, near to my heart, I saw it, it, was, just a, it was just a thrill to be close to Pete and Andre as competitors and his people. But frankly, neither one of them wanted to get involved in the, ATP, in, in the governance of the sport. I, I would always work to have them understand what we're working on, and hopefully they would be supportive. But they were never really in, interested in campaigning for change. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not picking on them. I think that was the norm. I think the extent to which Nadal and Federer have been involved in the ATP Council uh, has been to their credit and they do have the opportunity to be very influential if they choose to be involved but it has to be real they have to be ready i mean their lives get complicated it's tough to be number 1 in the world and and you've got to have complete focus and then all of a sudden to be you know you don't just show up at a meeting and vote you you've got to talk to a lot of players you've got to understand the issues and it's a distraction and i think that's the reason that Other than sort of rhetorically, it's been very unusual for a top player to really be involved.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the fact that it was Roger Federer who sent out the tweet certainly spearheaded the level of conversation surrounding the merger talks. And again, this is a bigger tangent, but I think we've all, you know, been sitting around in quarantine and with the last dance being on the Michael Jordan Bulls, there was an interesting comment made in last week's episode that I just want to get your opinion on um, because they were comparing, you know, the most uh, famous athletes in the country, I think in the 80s. And right away they said John McEnroe and, you know, to hear a tennis player being one of the most famous individual athletes in in America as someone who's been a lifelong tennis fan, that's crazy to me. Uh, This is, again, a bit of a tangent, but do you think the glorification of the individual athlete in team sports, the fact that you can turn to a LeBron or a Tom Brady now as opposed to talking about the Lakers or the Patriots, do you think that's hurt tennis as a sport? It's hurt the standing of professional tennis players as celebrities around the globe?
1: You know, I I don't think of it that way, to be frank, um, because I think you've already mentioned great examples where we have uh, global heroes in men's and women's tennis. To me, there's there's a couple of big differences, though. The first in this country in particular is obvious that, you know, by the time a kid is making, a great athlete is making his choice about what college to go to, people are already reading about him or her by the time they get they graduate from college if they finish they're you know by the time they're in any kind of draft they're nationally known really nationally known and understood as a personality and as an athlete and then you get to the leagues well you know there isn't even school sports in Europe in most of the world only in this country and it's not like we're reading a lot about tennis players um as they come up to the ranks and get to through the NCAAs and into uh, professional tennis. So the biggest difference is we don't have this farm system that creates huge value before an athlete gets to the professional level. McEnroe with a few others was extraordinary. Um, you know, he just changed the sport because of the way he played and the way he behaved. And uh, and he was he, he was something he, he was. uh you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's indicative of everything that uh, Phil Knight at the, on the Nike campus had a McEnroe building along with, you know, some of the very few most elite athletes uh, in, in the world. Um, but anyway, I, you know, so I don't, I don't think it's I – I never thought of it that the other sports having a platform with certain advantages was to our detriment. It is what it is, and tennis just has to uh, find strategies – put itself forward in the most um, focused way to grow the game.
0: Yeah. And last question for you, because again, we want to be conscious of your time and are appreciative uh, of our conversation. And by the way, open invite whenever you want to come back, because I have I I left plenty of questions on the tables from the 90s. And, you know, there are plenty of things we could explore. But, you know, you talk about tennis getting creative, and particularly in the midst of a global pandemic, the idea of bringing back an international tour is sounds difficult, but the idea of maybe bringing back regional events and doing things in that manner seems more practical. As someone who played college tennis as at Wabash, at Wabash, however we want to say it, um, what are your thoughts on team tennis? You know, world team tennis is not something that's new, but the idea of maybe incorporating more Labor Cup-style, team-style events moving forward to increase tennis's popularity.
1: Well, there's kind of two parts to that. I mean, it's been worked on for a very long time, and it just never worked. And I think, as much as its interest, team tennis and its various iterations have been interesting, and as 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 sure as I am that I'm going to hear from Billie Jean King for saying this, (laughs) I I don't think that it has the kind of authenticity and the weight that that tournaments have that are part of the ranking system and that and that you know players uh, really make their living year round from. So that we we have an international series. Circuit and on both the men's and women's side, and I think that's really where the rubber meets the road for the most part um, If if we're thinking about it as the, a pandemic situation where you know, maybe in the immediate term uh, There's not going to be much travel between continents and so that makes getting the regular tournaments back uh, on the schedule difficult and a longer proposition maybe there are opportunities for just in this country Cities and states are beginning to open up a little bit more. Maybe that's possible before it's possible to run internationally or to uh, compete internationally. And and that might be one way to look at it. Look, let's just, we we can't, if we can't have uh, major events in tennis with the globe's best players playing this year or in the third quarter, maybe we can put something together in, in cities primarily with uh, players who are living here where it's more feasible. Yeah, so, it, ap- yeah, it could work that way, perhaps.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. All right, I lied. One more bonus one. Why was there ever a pro tournament in Indianapolis played on clay? Like, that just, it, antith- you know, that it makes no sense to me.
1: Well, it's because you're too short in the tooth, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, the U.S. Open was on clay. It's and true. And the the tournament in indianapolis was the u.s clay court championship it was a national title bestowed by the usta you got a gold ball if you want it along with some money eventually so it was positioned um for most of its years many of its years a couple weeks prior to the to the us open on clay courts and it made perfect sense what what happened before i got involved was that the us open <laughs> went to flushing meadow and all of a sudden it's a hardcore tournament and it made no sense for players to play on clay a couple of weeks or even three weeks you know before before the, the us open on a hard court so uh it was not popular because a lot of people in the usta and even in indianapolis felt like it was our obligation to teach us players to play on clay so they could be competitive globally my view was that that's not what i do that's not what our tournament's going to do our role is to have the strongest possible tournament a great platform for the world's best players to play so we paved the courts and uh it worked out really well but the u.s the, the u.s clay court championship had been in indianapolis for a very 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 long time played at country clubs for the most part
0: Mm -hmm. No, everyone knows Indianapolis, clay court powerhouse of the United States. It always has been. That was one of the uh, one of its reputations growing up in the USC playing Midwest events. Uh, Everyone knows North Central High School is just a clay court uh, center. Um, You know, too much. Yeah, exactly. Longer in the tooth than I let on. But, uh, you know, this interview has gone longer than I promised. So, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Seriously, uh, anytime you want to come back on the podcast, we would love to have you. And good luck uh, to you and obviously everyone at IndyCar as well. Uh, as you guys continue, you know, we're all desperate for sports at this point. Right. And so we look forward to seeing you. as a tennis fan. I'll watch anything. Um, but I think, you know, we wish you luck and uh, thank you again for taking the time to chat with us
1: it was a pleasure alex take care and good luck to uh crack rackets
0: oh thank you very much Hope you all enjoyed my conversation with former ATP CEO and current president and CEO of Penske Entertainment Corporation, Mark Miles, given the current discussions going on between the ATP and WTA, the ongoing merger talks. Feels like there's no one better to bring in than a former CEO of the ATP. And of course, I mean, the insight you gained from Mark there, I know I certainly learned things and I look forward to pestering him with text moving forward because uh, you know there are a few people better at. Equipped to discuss this sort of topic discuss the nuances of what goes into a merger discussion trying to form one unified tennis body then again a former ceo of the atp so a huge thank you to mark and we hope all of you listeners enjoyed the podcast a couple of other things just to let you all know what's coming up this week here at cracked rackets of course all of you at this point should be subscribed to our youtube channel and i imagine if you're listening to the Point of the podcast you already are so I apologize for asking you again but if for some reason you're not go subscribe to that right now you don't want to miss all of the cool stuff super producer Daniel Westhoff is up to on our YouTube channel our weekly show Overserved, where we look at all of the comedy that happens throughout tennis social media we of course talk and poke fun at some of our favorite storylines as well because there's so many quarantine content MVPs right now and we want to have a little fun at their expense celebrate their work so go check that out you can also also Also, check out the video form of our Great Shot podcast, CR Classics. Of course, the podcast forms are a little longer, but if you want to go check those out in video form, see the highlights of the matches we are discussing on the podcast while you listen. Be sure to go check out our YouTube channel. Also, of course, on the podcast front, this podcast, uh, you've already hopefully checked out those CR Classic episodes. But if you haven't, go do that. Also, go check out the recap Matt Stokoya, Chris Hallioris, and I did to put a bow on the 2020. Division I men's college tennis season. And speaking of college tennis, we have some fantastic college tennis crack interviews coming up for all of you. If you haven't, go check out the ones we've done and released recently with Brianna Schvets of Princeton, Elliot Spaziri of Texas, Gianni Ross of Virginia. I'll just say who we have in the queue right now because it's some great ones. Alexa Graham, Ashley Leahy, part two, uh, Michaela Gordon, Jada Hart. We've also got uh, some on the men's side as well, people like Alexa. Alexis Galarno, my Michigan Wolverine, Andrew Fenty, Oliver Crawford, Sam Riffis. So we're going to keep the college tennis rocking and rolling. Right now would be the NCAA tournament, and in the spirit of that, we've got a ton of fun college interviews on the horizon for all of you, so go check that out. And of course, if you need your daily fix, go check out the Mini Break podcast where we're always discussing fun stuff, having fun guests on there, people like Mark Lucero, Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim, and more. You don't want to miss any of that, so be sure to go check those out like rate subscribe review all of them last but not least go check out our newest podcast the inside out podcast which i am certain all of you are going to enjoy Uh, it's a deep dive look it's more of a narrative based podcast than talking about the current storylines i will tell you all right now our first season the belt looks at the best american male tennis player throughout the open era year by year we go and declare one man the champion above all else super producer daniel westoff puts his spin on it it is so much fun so be sure to go check that out like rate subscribe review it, share it with your friends and of course let all of us know what you think by interacting with us go to our website cracked or on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Be sure to reach out to us at crack Rackets. If you want to climb into my direct messages, feel free to at Great Pod. Always fun interacting with all of you. Shout out, as always, to the super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff, the men behind the scenes who make these episodes possible. As always, I give them a f- of an editing job to do, and they never once have uh, failed me yet, so shout out to them. But, well, shout out as well to our friends, I should say, at DraftGangs who make these pos- uh, podcasts possible one more time just as a reminder for all of you go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to play that's dkng.co slash cracking rackets with that being said for our wonderful guest former ATP CEO Mark Miles for our super producers Max and Daniel Westhoff and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you know what we say folks hey great shot and we'll see you all next time thanks everyone